Podcastle, episode 84, for December 29th, 2009. Restless in My Hand, by Tim Pratt. Welcome back to Podcastle. I'm Dave Thompson. When I was in college, I took several screenwriting courses, and one of the things our professors hammered into us was the importance of Joseph Campbell's The Hero with a Thousand Faces, which, if you're not familiar with it, describes in great detail the hero's journey. It was the book that inspired George Lucas to create the original Star Wars film. Mostly, we didn't study Campbell's text itself. Instead, we focused on derivative works about screenplays written by people who weren't screenwriters. Makes sense, right? These books essentially explained how most blockbuster movies followed the hero's journey, or at least made serious parallels to it, even if the movie in question wasn't an epic fantasy or adventure, but instead was something like... Witness. You know, the movie with Harrison Ford and the Amish? Yeah... The books would also describe how you had to have certain aspects of the hero's journey take place on specific pages of your script. Take, for example, the hero's refusal to the call of adventure. You know, the scene in movies where heroes or heroines say they've got too much going on to save the world, like, for example, when Luke Skywalker tells Obi-Wan Kenobi he can't really go with him to Alderaan. Yeah, that needs to happen by page 20, preferably. I'm not kidding. Ideally, it should happen by page 15. One of the most difficult things about writing scenes like the refusal of the call was to make them feel honest, because really as the audience, or as the reader, we're in the story because of the call to adventure. We want to see the hero do something cool. What fun would it be if Luke never left tattooing, if Tristan never crossed wall, or if Captain Jack blew off Legolas and said, nah, really not interested in the Black Pearl, mate, not too fond of haunted ships to be honest. Not much story left, right? And besides, what would be worth that kind of sacrifice? The kind of sacrifice where you shrug off destiny, true love, adventure, maybe even superpowers. Isn't that the kind of thing we all really hope for deep down inside? Boy, would I love to share today's story, Restless in My Hand by Tim Pratt, with some of those screenwriting professors. You know Tim Pratt, he's a favorite here at Podcastle. His stories have appeared in the Best American Short Stories, The Year's Best Fantasy and Horror, and other nice places. He's won a Hugo and lost the Nebula, and he lives in Oakland with his wife Heather Shaw and their son. He writes an urban fantasy series about ass-kicking sorceress Marla Mason under the name T.A. Pratt. You can find his blog at journalscape.com slash Tim, and follow his Twitter feed at Tim Pratt. Today's story is read for you by the always reliable Steve Anderson, who also does freelance acting, voiceover work, storytelling, living history, and educational and interactive theater. You can find out more, or even hire him for your own voice acting needs at www.sgcreative.com or www.greattaleslive.com. So sit back, relax, and ignore that whispering voice that only you can hear. Enjoy the story. Restless in My Hand by Tim Pratt The man on the doorstep wore a dark blue suit and a red felt bowler hat stained with black juices, and the teeth in his wide smile bulged from bleeding gums. Richard stood half behind the door, wrinkling his nose, and said, Can I help you? I'm delivering a family heirloom, the man said, and gestured toward a large wooden crate standing at the bottom of the steps, next to Bev's begonias. The man kept smiling, if you could call it a smile, even as a trickle of blood seeped from his gums and dripped down one incisor. Richard leaned out of the doorway a bit, 
but didn't see any other men, or even a dolly, and he wondered how the man had muscled the crate over the curb and up the stepping stone path to the door alone. There wasn't even a van or truck at the curb, either. An heirloom, Richard said. I'm not expecting anything like that. It's an inheritance, the man said, and flourished a clipboard. You're Richard Selfrey, yes? He flipped over a page. Your mother was Veronica Mitchell Selfrey. Her mother was Jessica Klein Mitchell. And her mother was Melody Kubler Klein. I realize they didn't all hyphenate, of course. That wasn't the fashion. But it's important to keep track of the maiden names all the way back sixteen generations to Mary Cooper and her husband. Long may he rot in the grave. Um, Richard said, choosing to fasten on the parts of that he'd understood. Great-grandma Melody, yes, I remember her. This is from her. The man beamed his bloody magnificence, but didn't answer. Bad gums aside, he looked like an English butler from a film based on a P.G. Wodehouse novel, solicitous and buttoned down. Then it's settled. This is yours, passed down through all the long generations of your family, held in trust by my, um, firm for the past sixteen generations, returned at last to hands that can wield it. Do I need to sign something, Richard said. He wanted to get this man off his steps as soon as possible. Bev would be back with her son Tyler soon, and Ty sometimes got cranky around strangers. There was no telling how he'd react to a grinning, bloody-toothed man in a suit. Not at all necessary. This goes beyond names, Mr. Selfrey, and into the blood. I will, however, take a moment to go over the provenance with you. Provenance? Richard perked up. When he'd heard heirloom, he'd thought of tarnished silver, china too delicate to use, the sort of things you felt obligated to keep on a shelf somewhere, but secretly resented for taking up space. But provenance was a classy word, and maybe it meant this inheritance was something valuable. What is it, exactly? It is an axe, Mr. Selfrey, the man said. He produced a pry bar, from where Richard wasn't sure and, with a great squealing and popping of nails, pried the lid off the crate. Richard left the safety of the doorway and went out onto the porch, just as the man set the lid aside. Peering into the crate, Richard saw only darkness, as if the box were full of ink. But then something glinted silver, and, as if his eyes were adjusting to a moonlit night instead of mid-afternoon sun, he saw the great silver crescent of an axe head nestled among styrofoam packing peanuts that were, inexplicably, black instead of white. It was a double-bladed axe with a long, three-sided pyramidal spike emerging from the top. Workmanship, the man said approvingly. Look at the blood gutters on that spike. It's not as if the spike was ever likely to be used for stabbing, but the smith allowed for the possibility. Truly, they were giants on the earth in those days. I don't understand, Richard said. This thing is a family heirloom? From Great Grandma Melody? It doesn't even look old. The shaft has been replaced a time or two, I wager, though the current one is several hundred years old. But the head, oh, it will stand the test of time. You could shear leptons in two with that blade if the need arose. 
Lepers? Richard said. Moving along, the man said, referring again to his clipboard. He cleared his throat. <clears throat> the Provenance. This is the great axe of fearsome heft. Its name cried out in pain and fear in all the dark places of the world. That name is now forgotten, erased from the history of the race it tried to vanquish, and no longer known to any living thing. This great axe passed from father to son, from uncle to nephew, from cousin to cousin, always to the nearest male relative. I know, terribly sexist, but this was a long time ago, and the smith something of a chauvinist, until a curse was laid upon that line of men, that no male child should be born to them unto fifteen generations. And so, when the axe fell from the dying hands of the last man of that line, it lay in the dust until its enemies took it up to destroy it. But the blade would not break or bend or burn, and so it has been held in trust in a place of disgrace, shat upon by its enemies, to some day be given back to the first male born of that accursed line. The man glanced up. That's you. We, uh, should have brought it to you on your fifteenth birthday, but frankly we were busy, and might have left the axe in storage forever if it hadn't started keening. Foul thing, it must have smelled your blood and testosterone even over all that distance. Anyway, it's yours now, the bane of my race, an antique. Good luck with it. The man gave a little salute and began to walk away. Wait, Richard said, looking up from the dazzling gleam of the axe. What are you talking about? A curse? The man paused. You were the first boy born in fifteen generations, weren't you? Aren't you blessed with aunts and great-aunts and great-great-aunts ad infinitum? I have uncles, Richard said, and then frowned. But all by marriage, I guess. The man shrugged. It was a good curse. You have the great axe again. Enjoy. I'm sure it will fly through firewood like nobody's business. I don't think this was meant for cutting wood, Richard said, and began to reach for the weapon. He hesitated before touching it, with the oddest idea that just getting close to that edge could be enough to make him bleed. No, the man said, it's meant for fighting a war. But that war has been over for almost four centuries, Mr. Selfrey, when your last male ancestor fell on the battlefield, and there was no one left to take up arms in his place. You're living in the post-war world, and you're blessed with sufficient ignorance to live without knowledge of your circumstances. He doffed his stained hat and bowed, revealing the top of his head, which oozed blood and squirmed as if his hair were tiny worms or tentacles. He strode off across the yard and down the sidewalk and soon vanished from sight. Richard gaped after him, thinking, it must be a skin disease, some scalp condition, what else could it be? Richard looked at the axe. He wondered what Bev would think of it. I'm not sure I want that thing in our house. Don't be silly, Bev said, crouching by the fireplace where the axe leaned against the bricks. The shaft was over a yard long, the head gleaming in the soft lamplight. 
The Selfreys had a cozy, book-filled living room, done up in dark wood and occasional flashes of brass, with a scattering of colors from Tyler's plastic toys on the floor. It's beautiful. She touched the polished wood of the axe handle. You don't work in an emergency room, Bev. I do. I've seen people come in with their legs gashed by chainsaws, people who've chopped their toes off with shovels. This thing is dangerous. I'm not saying we should keep it under Ty's pillow, she said, rising. Or even put it anywhere he can reach it. We'll keep it in the bedroom. Maybe hang it on the wall. I'm not sure the whole Viking warrior look will go with our furnishings. Besides, you know, Ty, he can't pick up a stick without pretending it's a sword, or a banana without using it like a gun. How are we going to keep him away from this thing? The same way we keep him away from your porn and my vibrator, Richard, by having a lock on our door. Besides, the whole everything's a weapon thing is typical. He's a four-year-old. He'll get over it. And he didn't even look at the axe twice when he came home, just went to the TV room to watch cartoons. Maybe we can just sell the thing. Richard had told Bev the axe was an heirloom, though he'd left out the details about the delivery man's bloody mouth and the bizarre provenance. It's supposed to be old. Bev turned on him, frowning, which surprised him. She was an antique dealer and had a habit of calculating the possible sale price of pretty much any old object they encountered. Bite your tongue. It's a family heirloom, Richard. You said so yourself. This will belong to Ty someday. He held up his hands. Okay, okay, we'll keep it in the bedroom. But not hanging over the bed, please. If there was an earthquake and that thing fell on us, we'd be chopped to bits. Bev rolled her eyes and tried to pick up the axe. She grunted, wrapped both hands around the handle, strained, then gave up. Jesus, Richard, how did you even get that thing in the house? It weighs a ton. Ah, uh, Richard said, a ball of cold growing in his gut. Bev was no weakling. She hauled furniture in and out of trucks on a fairly regular basis, and Richard had lifted the axe without any trouble at all. He'd even wondered what kind of metal the axe head could be made out of to be so big and yet so light. Holding the axe had been, well, fun, and the desire to go swinging it at trees and mailboxes had been a powerful one. He'd resisted, because he was a grown-up with a wife, and son and job, and grown-ups didn't do crap like that. The delivery guy helped me, but I can move it into the bedroom. I guess hanging it up won't work, she said. The weight would rip the studs right out of the wall. Richard lifted the axe with a great show of effort and took it to the bedroom. After a twelve-hour nursing shift at the hospital, and a particularly rough one at that, Richard came home in the morning and collapsed into bed. Ty was in daycare, and Bev was in the next county at an auction, so the house was blessedly silent. His schedule was good in some ways. He often got four-day weekends, which was good for spending time with his son and with Bev, who had a very flexible schedule, but working two or three shifts in a row tended to wipe him out, especially as he got older. Now that he was in bed, though, sleep didn't come. He was physically tired, but not sleepy and his mind ticked along steadily, thinking about the man who'd brought the axe, thinking about the weird black styrofoam peanuts that had melted into thin, oily residue when he began scooping them into the garbage can. 
trying not to think about the axe leaning upside down over in the corner, the spike on top digging into the carpet, the gleaming blades. How strangely good holding the weapon felt. He closed his eyes, and after a time, he slept. When he woke some hours later, the axe was on the floor by the bed, his arm hanging off the edge of the mattress, his fingers gently touching the handle. Oh, hell, he said, but he didn't jerk his hand away. Ty and Richard played in the yard that afternoon. Ty had blonde hair, as Richard and Bev both had as children, though theirs had darkened as they aged, and a ready smile. He held a plastic sword in both hands and made little explosive sounds with his mouth as he swung it, as if the sword were somehow capable of blowing up whatever he struck. Richard had to make do with a sword made from tinker toys, and they fenced around the yard. Richard wanted to enroll Ty in a martial arts class to channel his energy and desire to hit things, but Bev was resistant, insisting that his love for all things fighting-related would pass. And it was true. Ty seemed to love books as much as he loved kicking imaginary ninjas, though he couldn't really read yet. So Richard supposed she might be right. He'd spent a lot of time fighting imaginary ninjas himself as a child, after all, and he'd wound up going into nursing, which was about as far from ninja fighting as it was possible to get. I chopped off your head, Ty crowed, though he hadn't even come close, really. Ouch, my head, Richard cried. What will I do without a head? How will I brush my hair? It's okay, Ty said. I'll help you put your head back on later. Later that year, after what happened with the burglar, Bev agreed to let Richard move the axe into the attic. The thief hadn't been hurt, but he'd been terrified, and the police found him huddled on the front steps of the Selfrey house, weeping. A detective told Richard the man wouldn't even touch a plastic knife to cut his food anymore, and that he wouldn't shave, even with a safety razor. The doc says it's called achmophobia, the detective said. Fear of knives, needles, sharp things, whatever. You must have scared the ever-living shit out of that guy. Sitting on the couch, Bev holding his hand, Richard shook his head. He didn't remember much at all about that night, not even hearing a noise, certainly not picking up the axe and creeping into the living room and finding the burglar. He just remembered, standing in the front doorway, the axe in his hand, the thief cowering at his feet, and the fact that he'd felt no urge at all to bring the axe down and kill the man. He'd sensed, somehow, that it would be inappropriate, that the axe hadn't been made for killing people, but something else entirely. The axe is just an old family heirloom, he'd said. I don't even think it's sharp. We don't have a gun or anything, though, so when I heard someone in the living room, it was the only thing I could think to pick up. I came in, yelled at him, waved the axe, and he ran off. Maybe the burglar always had that phobia. The detective snorted. The guy had a big hunting knife and a switchblade on him when we picked him up, so I think not. But you did good, Mr. Selfrey. Scared him off, didn't hurt him. Impressed the shit out of the officer who arrived at the scene, too. He said when he saw you standing in the doorway holding that axe, you looked like some kind of crazy medieval superhero. Richard felt obscurely pleased. I just did what anyone would do, he said. As Richard checked IVs and handed out meds at the hospital, his lower back aching from the hours on his feet, he began to think about the axe. 
As a boy, he'd had the usual superhero fantasies, imagining powers, enemies, epic battles. He would save his mother from kidnappers. He would help his father fight off a great horned beast from the woods behind the house. For a while as a boy, Richard had imagined that he could make the wind blow just by willing it, and he'd sat high in the branches of a tree and imagined summoning tornadoes to destroy the homes of the wealthy bullies who tormented him at school. Now, walking through the hospital, thinking of the gleam and heft of the nameless great axe, he had those fantasies again, though he had no real enemies anymore. The bloody man who'd brought the axe had talked as if the weapon were part of a mission, and that was an attractive thought too, wasn't it? How simple it would be to have a clear purpose and a weapon made to achieve it, instead of the muddle of goals and obligations that came with adult life. To maintain his marriage with Bev, to have sex with her at least once a week, to make sure Ty grew up loving and trusting them and became a good person, to keep the cars maintained, to keep the plants watered, to keep up the mortgage payments, to make sure the bills were paid and their credit rating remained robust. Richard had problems, of course, but they weren't the sort of problems that could be solved by swinging an axe at them. The year Tyler turned five, Richard moved the axe out of the attic into the garden shed one day while Bev and Ty were out. The blade had started whispering to him through the ceiling of the house, and while he was somewhat worried he was going insane, he thought it more likely the axe really was whispering. At first, the words had been incomprehensible, but as night followed night, they became more and more like English and he was afraid soon he might understand what the axe was saying. Standing in the backyard, the axe resting easy in his hand as always, Richard swung the weapon experimentally at the empty air between the hammock and the gas grill. A thin, bright gash appeared in the air as if he'd cut through canvas, and beyond the rip he glimpsed scudding gray clouds, a hilly landscape dotted with lonesome trees, and a sprawling fortress of gleaming black stone shot with reddish-brown streaks, as if the whole building were made of polished hematite. Richard cried out and flung the axe away from him, and the gash in the air vanished. Or else his ability to see it did. Shaking, he went into the shed, pulled on a pair of thick gardening gloves, and picked up the axe. It whispered to him. The only word he could make out was go, go, go. Richard wrapped the head of the axe in burlap sacks and stuck it in the corner, back behind the flower pots, and went inside to wash his hands. Standing at the sink, he decided the back shed wasn't far enough. Heirloom or not, the axe was driving him crazy, or revealing the fundamental hidden madness of the world, and he needed to get rid of it and get back to normal. Otherwise, he might take the axe in hand again and do what it said. He might just go. Richard had to wait a few weeks, but it wasn't too bad. With the axe in the shed, he couldn't hear the whispering, and after the first night, he stopped dreaming of the hematite fortress. Finally, Bev went to visit her sister in Mendocino County to let Ty play with his cousins for a couple of days and Richard said he couldn't go because of work. 
That evening he took the axe, still wrapped in its sacks, and put it in the trunk of their beat-up backup car, a little two-door Corolla with bucket seats from their pre-Tyler days. He drove a few miles north to a state park that was closed for the night, and stopped by the side of the road. He took the axe and the shovel, the shovel felt much heavier than the axe, and stepped over the closed gate at the park entrance, guided by the light of a headlamp on an elastic band around his head. After following the path through redwoods for a few hundred yards, he cut off into the trees down a sloping hill until he found a likely spot near a creek. He dug a hole and tried to shake off feelings of guilt as the pile of soil grew. It wasn't like he was burying a body. He was burying an axe, something he hadn't wanted in the first place. Something that had saved his house from being robbed, sure, but had stolen his peace of mind in the process. Richard dropped the axe in its shallow grave, covered it with dirt, kicked leaves over the whole thing, and went back to his car. He had expected to feel relief, and there was some of that. But there was also anxiety, as if he'd thrown away something he might someday need. Richard reeled and grabbed hold of the wooden table in the garden shed to catch his balance. His head pounded, and he couldn't understand how he'd gotten here. He'd been in bed just a moment before, and... The axe. It leaned in the corner of the shed, double-edged head gleaming. Gleaming in the sunlight that filtered through cracks in the wall. Daylight? How? He'd buried the axe, come home, gone to bed. And now the axe was back, like something from a horror story, something you could never be rid of. A cursed object you could throw away only to have it show up on your step again the next day, magically returned. Except not magically. Richard was hungry. His boots were dirty. His watch said it was nine in the morning. He'd gone back to get the axe. He'd sleepwalked, sleep-drove, sleep-dug, sleep-drove home again. Gone into a fugue state, returned to the park, dug up the axe, and brought it home. Use me, the axe whispered. The war is not done. Our enemies yet live. Take arms, take arms. Go, go, go. Richard fled into the house. He thought about renting a boat and dropping the axe in the middle of the bay, but he was afraid he'd somehow managed to sleep scuba dive and retrieve it. So instead, he took a steamer trunk from the attic, placed the axe inside. It fit barely when he put it in diagonally, wrapped the trunk in chains and rope, and shoved it in the back of the shed, where he piled a sack of peat moss and some flower pots on top. The whispering was muffled now, and he wouldn't be able to hear it at all once he shut the shed door. I'm sorry, he said, standing in the doorway. If I'd gotten you when I was a teenager, when they were supposed to bring you to me, maybe I'd be able to do what you want. But I have a wife, I have a son, I have responsibilities. It's not my war. The axe whispered something in response, but Richard couldn't make it out, and instead of stepping closer and listening hard, he stepped out and shut the door. The year Ty turned eight. Third grade, cursive writing, multiplication tables, soccer practice after school. 
Bev confessed to Richard that she'd been cheating on him for the past six months with an antique dealer she'd met at an estate sale. Richard sat on the couch with his head in his hands. Ty was in Mendocino with his aunt, sent away by his mother so she could have this conversation. Do you want out, Bev, he said. Is that it? Bev sat in a chair across the room, probably because she knew Richard didn't respond well to closeness or touch in tense situations. Ty was the same way and hated being touched when he was upset. It's not that, Richard. It's just... I don't know if I can explain it. Taking Ty to soccer practice in our minivan, I realized I'd become one of those women, you know? That I was older, that I had responsibilities, that... You remember how it used to be. We'd go off on weekends to Santa Cruz on a whim. We'd take road trips to Las Vegas and gamble. We'd spend whole weekends in bed. But it hasn't been like that for years, Richard said, unable to look at her, staring at the carpet. Since we had Ty, we've had to settle down. God, Bev, it's called being a grown-up, you know? You make choices, trade-offs. I know, she said. I'm sorry, Richard, it's just... I really felt it this year, felt my youth slipping away. I wanted to feel beautiful again. I wanted to be something other than a mom. I wanted to have an adventure. An adventure, Richard thought, and the axe was there in his mind. Maybe he'd like an adventure, to cut a gash in the air, step through and do something decisive and violent, the sort of thing relegated to daydreams and video games to wield a great fucking magical axe against monsters with bloody teeth. It was an opportunity no one in the world even had except for him. But he'd put his marriage, his responsibilities, his adulthood first. Part of him thought they were just afraid. Bev wasn't afraid. But it wasn't fear. He feared nothing when he held the axe, except the possibility of losing the things he loved. Maybe I should go have a fucking adventure then, he said. And now he did look at her, at her tear-streaked face, which was still beautiful. She wasn't even forty yet. Yeah, how would that be? If you wanted to sleep with someone else, I wouldn't blame you, she said quietly. Richard laughed out loud. No, he said, no, that's not what I meant at all. He went into the shed and sat by the axe and listened to it whisper for a while. But the next day, Ty came home, and he could tell there was something wrong between his parents, and Richard picked him up and played some video games with him, and made his choice to stay once more. That night, as he got ready for bed, Bev said, I'm sorry, Richard. It will never happen again. I mean it. Richard thought for a while. He still loved her. And though it twisted him up and hurt him badly, he did understand her desires. He'd felt them himself in a different direction. Okay, he said. He thought, in time, they'd get back to being the way they used to be. They probably would have gotten past it, too, if Bev hadn't been struck and killed by a car while crossing the street a week later. Ty was with his aunt the day after the funeral, because Richard had wanted some time alone. He sat in the garden shed with the trunk open, chains scattered, the axe gleaming before him. You can help me find him, Richard said. The driver had hit and run, and the police were investigating. There were witnesses, but no one had gotten the license plate number, and there were a lot of red Hondas in the world. 
but Richard thought the axe could help. Yes, the axe whispered. We can find him and cut him into pieces for killing my wife, Richard said. I am not made for killing men, the axe said. But if you promise to take up arms against our enemies, I will help you kill this man. I will make that bargain. Richard blinked tears from his eyes. But, Ty, I will pass to him when you fall in battle, the axe said. Ty, eight years old, bewildered, lost, broken. He'd only just begun to comprehend death, and now his mother was dead. If his father disappeared too, I... No, Richard said, I'm sorry. He put the axe in its trunk, closed the lid, chained it up, put it away, and cried and cried and cried. The driver who killed Bev was never found. Richard changed his life. He devoted himself completely to his son. He adjusted his schedule, which was possible given his many years in the job, so that he could have his nights and weekends free to be a father. His sister-in-law offered to take Ty for the summers, encouraged Richard to date, but he refused. His son grew older, did passably well in school, became interested in sports, and eventually in girls. He had friends over to stay the night, went on field trips, had a boyhood. Around the time he turned thirteen, he became private, short-tempered, snappish, and Richard worried that he was into drugs or hanging out with the wrong crowd, but his sister-in-law reassured him. My daughter Gwen went through the same thing, she said. My little Bobby will too, I'm sure, once he gets older. It's a hard age. Ty's figuring out how to be his own person, testing the boundaries, all that. It'll pass. I'm afraid he hates me, Richard said. You just try to be a good dad and do what you know is right, she said. And someday, when he's older, he'll understand. And even if he doesn't, it doesn't matter, you know. All that matters is that you raise him right as best you can. We give up everything for our kids, and when we grow up, they never call or visit enough. She laughed, just like we did with our parents, right? And Richard had to laugh. Ty spent more and more time away from home, visiting friends, going to the mall. Sometimes it seemed like the house was just a place where he ate and slept. Richard spent some of his free time visiting Bev's grave, but mostly he sat out in the garden shed and talked to the axe. When Ty goes off to college, I'll do it, he said. The axe murmured at him. Richard had thought it all through. He'd sign everything over to Ty, the house, the cars, the bank accounts, all of it. He'd pick up the axe, slash the air, and step through to the world of that hematite fortress. Some people retired and moved to Florida. Richard would retire and move to Narnia or Mordor, or Oz, or whatever that place beyond the world was. When he held the axe, the ache in his back would disappear. He would feel the way he'd felt standing over the burglar, like a man of power, like a man of purpose, like a defender of right and true. Maybe he'd leave Ty a note, explaining, telling him about the axe, warning him, or promising him that it would be his someday. Or, better, Richard could return, triumphant, the war won, 
and tell his son stories of the family's glory. Surely, beyond that gash in the air, Richard would finally learn the truth about his history, about the war the men of his family had waged, about their enemy. Just a few more years, he told the axe. You've waited fifteen generations. What's a few more years? The axe neither agreed nor disagreed. It only murmured, even as Richard spoke, as if it wasn't even talking to him. Tie, Richard called, kicking his shoes off inside the front door. I brought home Indian food. Tai was fifteen. It was his birthday, though he wasn't having a party until Saturday, and he and Richard were starting to get along better these days. They shared a mutual love for a violent cop show about a wise-cracking anti-hero, and every Thursday night they ate Indian food or Chinese or cheeseburgers and watched it together. Richard had come to look forward to those nights more than anything. Ty didn't answer. Richard went into the kitchen, set down the bags of takeout, and saw that the back door was ajar. Richard realized what had happened at once and rushed out the door. Ty stood in the backyard, a bulging backpack on his shoulders, the great nameless axe in his hands. A shimmering rip in the air hovered before him, showing a glimpse of the hills, the trees, the clouds. It was raining in that other world, and Richard thought fearfully that Ty didn't even have a raincoat or an umbrella. Ty, he said. Tyler turned, looked at his father, and sighed. Sorry, Dad, I was hoping to be gone before you got here. I left a note on your pillow. Son, you don't know what you're doing. Richard approached him slowly, as he would a feral cat he hoped to rescue. Please, come in. Let's talk about this. Tyler looked at him with open scorn. The axe told me, Dad. It told me how you were afraid to use it, how you wouldn't even go after the guy who killed Mom, how you tried to bury it. But I'm not scared. I know there's a war. I'm going. Richard opened his mouth and closed it again. How to explain to a fifteen-year-old boy that fear hadn't motivated him at all, that he'd longed to take up the axe and step into the gash in the air, that he'd stayed for different reasons altogether. It wasn't like that, Ty. But Ty shook his head, and as he spoke his voice broke and he started crying. All this time you've never told me about the axe, that I had a destiny, that I could be doing something important, because you were so afraid. But I'm not afraid. I'm not like you. I'm going. Richard thought about how to explain, to tell Ty he'd stayed for him, all for him. But he was a kid, and kids were selfish, and kids tended to ascribe selfish motives to others. Richard had been the same way as a teenager, hadn't he? Only he hadn't had a magical axe and a purpose. Be safe, Ty, he said. He couldn't believe he was saying it. He wanted to tackle his son, hold him down, take the axe away from him. But it was too late for all that. He'd done the best he could, tried to raise his son right. And now, in the eyes of the axe, Tyler was all grown up or grown up enough, anyway. Come back when you can, and let me know you're okay. Ty looked confused, as if he'd expected an argument, and Richard heard the axe murmuring. 
I don't know if I can really be careful, Tyler said after a moment, but I'll be as careful as I can. The axe murmured again, more insistently, and Ty looked annoyed. I will come back if I can, Dad, and uh, I'll miss you. I love you, Ty, Richard said, because that's what you said to your children, because it was the truest thing in the world, even if they were too embarrassed sometimes to say it back. I know, Dad, I said, and stepped through the gash in the air. It shimmered and closed up behind him, and Richard was left standing in his yard, alone, holding nothing. Later, Richard called his sister-in-law and told her Ty had run away. He'll come back, she said. Once he sees how hard it is out there, believe me, he'll come back. Or else he'll call me, and I'll tell him he damn well better go back. He's a good kid, Richard. He'll do the right thing. But Ty never returned. Six years later, Richard came home from a movie. He spent a lot of time going to movies, and found a long wooden box resting on the doorstep. Richard took the box inside and opened it up, unable to decide if he should be hopeful, excited, or afraid. The box was full of straw, with an envelope inside. Richard sat on the couch, opened the envelope, and took a photograph out. The photo was from an old-fashioned instant camera, and Richard tried to remember the last time he'd seen one of those in these days of digital photography. The photograph was of Ty, older, with a blonde beard, standing in a forest beside a woman. Her hair was a shocking mane of red, her eyes an impossible gold, holding a young boy in her arms. The child had blonde hair and golden eyes, and he scowled as only a small child can. Tears came to Richard's eyes. The note inside the envelope, in a strange brownish ink, read, I understand now, Dad. I care about my son more than I have ever cared about anything in the world, more than our acts, more than winning the war, more than my life. I met a smith here. I had him make something for you. Richard put the letter down. He brushed the straw aside and revealed a short sword nestled in the box, its blade a silvery gleam, its hilt capped with an amber stone. Richard took up the sword. Hello, he said. Let's go, the sword whispered. Go, go, go. Richard took the sword and cut the air. Through the gash he saw the hematite fortress in ruins and all the trees in full flower. Pushing fifty, the ache in his back worse than ever, and happier than he'd been in a dozen years, Richard stepped through the air to meet his grandson. Feedback for Podcastle episode number 76, Holly Phillips' The Small Door, the first of our Share the Free Fantasy Fiction Love campaign here at Podcastle. This one was picked for us by your friendly neighborhood editors at Fantasy Magazine. It drew comparisons with Harper Lee's The Kill a Mockingbird and Alfred Hitchcock's Rear Window, which is very cool, really, but became infinitely cooler when someone also compared it to The Sandlot. I love that movie. Whatever said, I like this story and what's more, I didn't think I would. I had a strong suspicion of where the story was going, but when Sal sees the first critter in the cage in its condition, my expectation got derailed. I also thought there was a lot of stuff going on that gave the story a bigger world feel to it. Like the carnival in Macy's condition. 
Finally, the unabashed way that the characters talk, referring to the guy as a weirdo making comments like, you fought like a girl, were very in character. LaShawn said, I listened to it with my five-year-old son in the car. This story had just a tiny bit of magical element to it, yet that tiny bit seemed to permeate the entire story. To me, this proves that a good fantasy story doesn't always have to show you the magic from the first page onward. I love the carnival bits. It spoke volumes that while Sal could see and hear it, it was tantalizing out of reach for her. It tied in nicely with a small door at the end. And Try Harder said, I've been thinking about this story since I listened to it a few days ago. Childhood's often sad and unfair, and I think this story captures that fact, yet offers a sliver of hope to temper it. There have been so many times I wish I could go through a door like that. I have to admit, with a handle like Try Harder and a post count of one, I expected a little bit different kind of response from this story, so I was pleasantly surprised. Oh, and did I mention people love Tina Connolly's reading? Like, to the point where one forum might even suggest that nobody else reads stories from a young girl's POV except her? You can let us know what you think about it all at forum.escapeartist.net. Anyway, that's all the feedback we have for this week, this year, this decade. Wow! Next time I talk to you all, it'll be 2010, the year we make contact. Now, uh, that's Escape Pod, isn't it? Uh, 2010, a film by Roland Emmerich? No, that's a Pseudopod one for sure. So many different levels. Maybe let us step out into 2010 and pursue that flighty temptress adventure? Well, whatever the case, thanks for sticking with us for the past year and beyond, and happy holidays from all of us here at Podcastle. Founding thaumaturgical editors extraordinaire Rachel Swirsky and Ann Leckie, our kick-ass sorceress co-host M.K. Hobson, our own personal psychopomp on the forum, Haredel, a.k.a. Mr. Bill Peters, even us newbies, the ever-delightful, dangerous, and deadly renegade breach agent Anna Schwind, who we like to think of as Anarchy in the Flesh, our new sound alchemist Peter Wood, and me, Dave Thompson, your humble, resident, improbability pirate and co-host. But before we go, I'd like to share a toast with all of you from my old drinking buddy, Hob Gadlin. To absent friends, lost loves, old gods, and the season of mists. And may each and every one of us always give the devil his due. We'll see you on the other side of the decade. Have a happy new year. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. You can discuss this episode of Podcastle or nearly anything else on our forums. Just visit forum.escapeartists.info. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Brian Edwards said, Compromise is but the sacrifice of one right or good in the hope of retaining another, too often ending in the loss of both.